Our first scripture reading is the 71st Psalm, verses 1 through 6. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. The word of God for the people of God. This scripture reading this morning is a very familiar one. Uh, and some of you could quote it probably. But I'm going to read it from the message this morning. And it's going to say the same thing that we learned a long time ago. But in maybe in a language more like what we use today. But it's saying the same thing. I'm reading all 13 verses of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians this morning, and I thank you for this opportunity. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to the mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, Uh doesn't uh, revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always. Always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. Thank the Lord. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see things clearly. We are squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward the consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of the three is love. God's word for God's people. 
sorry that you are going to have to listen to baritone Alicia this morning, but I appreciate all of you. Our gospel text this morning is going to be from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 20 and read down to 30. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And he said, it is, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Amen. Uh, heal thyself what we have heard you what we have heard you did in Capernaum do here also in your own country and he said truly I say to you that no prophet is accessible in his own country but in truth I tell you there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there came a great famine over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zephariah in the land of Zidon to a woman who was a widow. And it was there that the many lepers in Israel in that time, the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Nahum, the Syrian. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and put him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill where the city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. But the passing through the midst of them he went. The word of God for the people of God. Now this week I'm going to do something a little different. I know I just read the gospel text, but I am not going to preach the gospel text this morning. I just, we read that for our own benefit. Um, But I thought we would be remiss to not hit on 1 Corinthians 13 since it was in our lectionary text this week. Um, Familiarity they say, often breeds contempt. And it might not be contempt in this case, but familiarity does breed a challenge to us as Christians. A challenge to hear that text with new ears. A challenge to gain perspective. Um, It's a challenge for us to look at the text and say, what was Paul trying to tell us? And what does Jesus want us to get from that text today? So that is what we're going to do. We're going to try to extrapolate what Jesus wants us to hear from 1 Corinthians 13. Two weeks ago, I preached to you guys about the wedding of Cana. And we discussed different wedding situations and things, but I left out probably the most Christian thing to do in modern Christian times, and that's to read this text. It's not a Christian wedding if you don't read 1 Corinthians 13 nowadays. I actually saw on Facebook recently, Somebody posted this lengthy bit of 1 Corinthians 13 and said, you should be able to put your man's name in anytime it says love. Anytime it says love in 1 Corinthians 13, you should be able to put your husband's, your spouse's name in, and if not, you need to get rid of them. That was what they had to say. So basically, let's say Corey, we should be able to say, well, Corey is patient, and Corey is kind, and Corey is not envious or boastful. Um, that is what they wanted you to be able to do with that. And all I can think in reading that is I'm not able to put my own name in that text. I'm not able to put any human being's name in that text, so I don't find that to be fair. I don't think 1 Corinthians 13 is a marriage litmus test. At least it shouldn't be, right? 
So if it's not a marriage litmus test, what is it? What is this portion of scripture we recite so often? So you see, love in marriage, love that we talk about at a wedding, is distilled to just one person. It's the bride's love for the groom. It's the groom's love for the bride. And we can see it in their vows, and we can see it in how they treat each other, and we can see it in the celebration of that day. And while that kind of love is beautiful, it is sincere, and it should be celebrated, Paul's not talking about that kind of love. Paul's talking about love in a public sense, not a private sense. In the way that we orient our lives to everyone around us, he's saying these three things should remain, faith and hope and love. And these aren't just pretty words. But these are the things that we should aim to fill our life with as Christians. Faith is the line between us and God and the relationship we have with God that we cannot see. And hope is the relationship that we have with ourselves and our future selves and who we are trying to be and who we aspire to be and how we understand the world when all things seem lost. That's hope. And in this understanding, if faith is how we relate to God and hope is how we relate to ourselves, then love is how we relate to everyone around us. Love is communal. Love in that respect. Not a Valentine's Day, Cupid and Hearts kind of childish love, but real love. Love for your fellow man. Love for your community. Love for your family. Love of people. There are few emotions that I have felt in my life that are as strong, as consistent, or as vibrant as the love that I have for my children. Obviously, there are many biological reasons, cultural reasons, spiritual reasons that we have these feelings for our children. But the love of a mother is probably one of the strongest bonds in the human world. They'd make it that way so you don't kill them. They want you to love your children. But there's so many layers, right? There's so many layers to this, to this love of child. There's this visceral need to care for your children, to love them beyond anything that they knew, to make them a soft place to land, to, to, to hold them when they're hurting, to feed them, to clothe them, to make a space for them. It's a love that requires to put all of your needs above theirs. There's that visceral need. And that love, that is occasionally met, if you have small children or can remember your small children, you know that that love is sometimes met with hugs and snuggles and beautiful, like, I love you, mama, right before bedtime. There's that good stuff, right? But then, if you have children like I do, then sometimes that love is met with defiance and tantrums and anger, and maybe somebody pees in the floor out of spite. That's a thing. That happens. Y'all know that? But you get both sides. You get both and. You don't get one or the other. When Paul is talking about this public love, Paul is talking about this deep, rich, caring for those closest for us, and then recreating that action towards everyone that comes across our path. For caring for those that seem impossible to care for, 
A gospel-filled love is taking that love of a parent that is deep and rich and has layers upon layers and then distributing it. Distributing it to all people, to all humanity, because that is the example that God has revealed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And sometimes, some people will embrace that love. They will hold it close, and they will cherish it. But just like our own children, whether in elementary school or in adulthood, some people will not accept that love. Some people don't know what to do with it, or how to handle it, or, or how to process a love so deep and wide and vast. But our example is Jesus. Our example is Jesus. And just like the love of a parent, regardless of how that love is received, our mandate is to continually give love. Freely and abundantly and without hesitation and without reservation. And Paul knows this is hard, right? Paul is obviously knows this is hard, that it can be draining. But the reason Paul says that our faith and hope is love and the greatest of them is love is because sometimes faith seems frail and empty. And sometimes hope feels like it's lost. We don't know what to think about God, and we don't know what to think about ourselves. And in those moments, loving folks around us, loving the unlovable, is where we can find faith and hope. Faith and hope is found in our love. An all-encompassing love can carry our hope and faith until we can find them again. An all-encompassing love can carry hope and faith until we can find them again. I think the next thing that we must realize from this text is not just as much a clarification to us as Christians about what love is as even more an admonishment to the Corinthian church as to what they were not. In the same way, if you ever hear me say to one of my daughters, be nice to your sister, young lady, it is probably not because I have found them being nice to their sister. Does that make sense to anybody? I, it's, I don't tell them to be kind to their sister because I found them being kind to their sister. I'm reminding them of their need for kindness because they lost their way. The Corinthian church needed this because they had forgotten their way. The Corinthian church knew how to be religious but had forgotten why religion was there to begin with. And if I were to be honest with you this morning, I could tell you that I have many times lost my way, both figuratively and literally, I am a self-admitted, directionally challenged adult. Am I the only one? Directionally challenged? I'm a directionally challenged adult. I can drive somewhere 15 times and not tell you how to get there. I'll have no idea how to tell you how to get there at all. Um, I'm not sure what works best for me, landmarks or street names, because I confuse them both. I don't know how to get anywhere. Um, I'm just often lost, and if it wasn't for GPS, I would never get anywhere ever. Um... This past couple weeks ago, I had an appointment at a doctor's office over at Quince and Kirby, which is an easy way, right, to get back to Olive Branch from Quince and Kirby. You go straight down Quince. It's not a big deal. 
you can get to Olive Branch from Quince and Kirby. Um, but I had to go pick up the girls that were in Nesbitt at like Pleasant Hill and Malone. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me how to get there. I just couldn't. I don't know why. I was like, well, what I will do then is drive back to my home and then drive from my home to Nesbitt because I don't know. So I called Corey first and I said, please tell me the easiest way to get from where I am to your mother's house. And he told me a lot of things. He told me, okay, he told me the easy way. I don't know, but I ended up in Millington. Um, that's not a lie. That's a true thing. I don't know where I was. I took a very scenic route to get my children and wasted half a tank of gas. Um, I'm not good at finding my own way. I have problems with directions. And honestly, this morning, I will tell you, I have often driven myself miles in the wrong direction spiritually, too. A lot. In my life, I have occasionally taken this super strict approach to spirituality, where you have to wake up really early in the morning, you have to have that hour a day before your kids wake up, and then you have this checklist you've made for your own self about all the spiritual things you had to get done for the day. I've done that. And for me, that's just miles in the wrong direction. Miles in the wrong direction. But I've also taken this loosey-goosey approach before where I just ingest anything and everything, regardless of where it comes from, but I implement none of it. And I just, I try all these different paths that don't really work, but don't really try hard. I've done that. Nothing really stuck. Nothing really works. And for me, that was just miles in the wrong direction. But I think the longest time I have spent losing my way was not in the super strict or not in the super open, but it was in the super certain, the very certain. The certain where what I believed and what I practiced and how I handled life was best, always. How I did it, how I prayed, how I did all these things. That was the best way. Back when I used Christianese phrases like, I'm just going to speak the truth to them in love. Because it was my truth, right? Or the most loving thing I can do for someone is tell them the truth. I said that a lot. But you know what? It was always my truth. It was always how I did things. And that was just miles in the wrong direction. Because I was losing my way just like the Corinthians. Because here's a secret that's not a secret. Discipline is not love. Freedom is not love. Certitude is not love. Truth is not love. Love, that's love. Love is love. And love is love. We can't take anything else and replace it. Love is love. The Corinthians often got love wrong. We often get love wrong. I often get love wrong. But thankfully, we have a beautiful book about God that reminds us what love is. For us to love the world better, we must follow the ways and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the church that love is patient and kind. But Jesus was always quick to remind his disciples that love moves. That love is a verb. 
that to fully love, we must do something. That love is more than an emotion, it's a practice. Love is more than emotion, it's always a practice. James reminds us that it's hard to claim faith without action. The example of love that we find in the personhood of Jesus makes the same claim about love, but with his life. It is hard to claim love without action. It is hard to claim love without action. It would be very difficult for me to prove to my children or to society as a whole that I loved my children if I did not feed them. If I didn't make sure they had a warm bed, if I didn't make sure they had a place where they, a soft place to land, if I didn't make sure that someone held them when they were hurting, it would be hard to convince children that you love them if those things weren't in place. But Jesus didn't have to feed the 5,000. Jesus didn't have to meet Zacchaeus to show him grace. Jesus didn't have to heal the woman with the issue of blood. And Jesus didn't have to resurrect Lazarus. He didn't have to do that. But he did it so we would know what love is. He did it so we would know what love is. In the same way that I know to love my children, I must care for them. Love that is defined by the gospel is taking care of the children of God. Love as defined by the gospel is taking care of the people that God cares about. To love the children of God, we must follow the ways of Jesus. To feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to embrace the stranger, and to heal the hurting. We must follow the ways of Jesus to properly love because God is love. God is love. And we shouldn't attempt to put our name into 1 Corinthians 13 and make it work because the answer is Jesus. You have to put in his name. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And now these things remain faith and hope in Jesus. Because the greatest of these is Jesus. Our God is the embodiment of love to the earth. So when we don't know how to love, and when we've lost our way, and we can't figure out how to go on in this life, there is no special formula, there is no magic potion. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. When issues arise in our lives and we aren't sure how to handle them, or how to process them, or how to proceed, we look to Jesus. When I don't know how to grieve, I look and see that Jesus cried at the death of Lazarus. When I don't know how to have joy, I see Jesus turn water into wine at the wedding of Cana just for fun. 
When I don't know how to move forward, I see how Jesus proceeded by praying and fasting and finding his joy. When I don't know what to do, I look to Jesus. Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the author of love. He is love. Jesus is love. There's this Peter Gabriel song that I sing to our children occasionally. You may know it, but you might not. It's a little song called The Book of Love. And I love to sing it to them at bedtime. Corey does too. But the lyrics kind of go like this. And it says, The book of love is long and boring. And no one can lift the darn thing. It's full of charts and facts and figures and instructions for dancing. And then the chorus goes on to say, and I, I love it when you read to me. Love is so huge, and love is daunting, and love is overwhelming, but we must keep reading the ways of Jesus. We must keep learning to dance the gospel way. Putting our faith into practice is the very movement of love. Putting our faith into practice is how we dance the ways of Jesus. Love is here. Love is God. Love is a word today. It's a verb that we must practice. And it's a dance. And I hope we all never quit dancing this morning. Let us pray. Father God, we give you grace this morning.